God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams makes glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, shall not be moved. Come, behold, the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth, He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot with fire. Cease striving. Know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob, the God of Israel, is our stronghold. Our Father, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you never change, though the world around us seemingly is forever caving in, especially in the nation in which we have found ourselves. We thank you that you are consistent, that you are sovereign, that all things are under your control. Father, our hearts grieve for our nation when things that were once unheard of have become commonplace. We pray for the families in the state of Florida and all the heartache they have in their hearts today, having lost their children. God, please come alongside them and uphold them. Let the church, like a mighty army, be a great testimony in this hour of the love of Christ and His compassion, His care. And may they see this hour as an opportunity to point people to the only hope that we have. Father, we thank you for your Son, our Savior, who came into the world to save sinners. Thank you that he offers forgiveness, and not only forgiveness and freedom from the eternal wrath, but a new living, life-changing relationship with yourself. Thank you for the Spirit who lives in us, who is our teacher and our helper. And Holy Spirit, we ask for your help today, the word that you inspired some of it very challenging to our minds and hearts, that you would help us whatever stage of spiritual growth that we're in to understand it and to apply it. I need your help. Thank you that in weakness there is strength. So please come and fill me and anoint me because without you I can't do anything. But with you all things are possible. And so use the message to edify the body of Christ but also to bring people into a saving relationship with yourself. And we'll give you all the praise and glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you take God's word this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 10 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through this great book. The Bible is clear that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And so we saw in the fourth chapter a door that is open in heaven. And unlike the vision that Daniel has of the throne room of God, and unlike the vision that Isaiah has of the throne room of God, the vision that John has is distinct in one way. There are 24 elders who are emblematic of the body of Christ that has been caught up into heaven, and it begins with that event to unfold the worst time this world has ever known. It is so terrible, so gruesome, so frightening that Jesus, who never embellishes the truth, said, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. 
You think about all the earthquakes, all the wars, all the famines, all the eruptions that volcanoes have brought, all the tsunamis, all the atrocities, all the wars. You combine them all together. And Jesus said, since the founding of the world and the creation of Adam and Eve, the time that is yet future is unparalleled in human history. And that time begins to unfold as we've seen in the sixth chapter this morning. We are in chapter 10, and we want to begin by reading our passage. I hope you brought a Bible, Revelation chapter 10, beginning now in verse 1. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to ride, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, and there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets." Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me, saying, Go, take the book which is open, and the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. In my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now you can barely watch anything on television, visit any website without knowing that evil is on the rise, not just in our part of the world, but across the globe. There is almost a daily announcement of some new sexual harassment case. Pornography is being viewed by Americans on a level that they have never, ever seen before. Gay and transgender lifestyle is being portrayed as normal, and they're teaching this behavior in little children's programs. Atheists are hell-bent on removing every vestige of God from the public place. And mass shootings that did not exist when I was a boy have become a common occurrence even in sacred places like churches and supposedly safe places like schools. And today, if you call anyone a sinner, you're considered intolerant and judgmental. And so today, the sin is not to commit the sin, but the sin today is to call the sin a sin. And in many people's mind, that is the sin. We're told today that people are mentally ill, that people are sick, but they're not sinners. We're told that people are ill, but they're not evil. That they are wicked, but they are not really depraved. 
Well, God has a different view of it. And so everywhere you go, people are wondering, with all the trouble in the world that we are seeing, do we have much hope? Why doesn't God intervene in the affairs of men and nations? If God really cares, why doesn't He do something? Or is it possible that the world is going to go into some uncontrolled plunge and into utter devastation? Well, our passage of Scripture, Revelation 10, answers those questions. Now, if I were preaching the highlights of the Revelation, I'd skip the 10th chapter because it is a chapter that is very, very meaty. It is very challenging, but God put it here. And so whether you are the newest Christian or the oldest, whether you are immature, a babe in Christ, or a grown-up Christian who has a growing relationship with the Lord, there's something here for all of us. Now, if you can understand the structure of the 6th through the 19th chapter, the book of Revelation will make so much more sense to you. As you work through the Revelation, you see there are 21 judgments that come in sealed trumpets and bowls, and they come in consecutive order. So one cannot happen until the other. And so, as you see in this first slide before you, there is a seven-sealed scroll that Jesus has given. And with each uh, seal that is unfolded, there's a judgment. We studied the first four seals, did four messages just on those, on the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then we studied the fifth seal that spoke of martyrdom that would happen during the time of the Great Tribulation in an unprecedented way in human history. Tribulation saints, people who are saved during the Tribulation, who are beheaded. Then we saw the sixth seal that indeed pictured cosmic changes in the skies above. And then between the sixth and the seventh seal, there's a space of time in terms of reflection. So we've seen this pattern, six, parenthesis, seven, six, parenthesis, seven, six more bowls, parenthesis, seven. And so in each space, so to speak, in each parenthesis, God helps us to see what is taking place during that time. And so as you can see on this chart, between the sixth and seventh seal, there in this, in this uh, seventh chapter of the Revelation, 144,000 Jews who are saved. God's not done with Israel. Forget the amillennial reformed theology of our day. God made an unconditional covenant with the people of Israel. And just as He used that nation to bring about the first coming, He will use the Jewish people to bring about the second coming. 144,000 Jews are saved, and they proclaim the gospel to the world, and the number of people who respond to their message is compared to the sand of the seashore. Then... In the seventh seal, there are seven trumpets, as this diagram shows. Just as in the seventh trumpet, there are seven bowls. And so we have been studying the first six trumpets in the eighth and ninth chapter. If you remember when the seventh seal was open, all of the trumpets, and in the seventh trumpet, all of the bowls, unlike the seal judgments, they can see them all at once. It brings us all the way to the second coming. And it is so awesome it just takes your breath away. There's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. The first six trumpets are sounded in the eighth and ninth chapter. And so you can see, having finished the sixth trumpet, before we come to the seventh trumpet, in chapters 10 through 14, there's another parenthesis. We are going to see during this time 
God's work upon the earth, but we're also going to be introduced to some major characters that will help us to understand the rest of the book. So here we are in the 10th chapter. There's this mighty angel or a strong angel or a powerful angel, depending on your translation, with a little book. There in your outline, if you're using it, three observations I want to make. First, the angel's appearance. The angel's appearance. Notice verse 1, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. This strong angel is on a mission. And John tells us he comes down from heaven. So it's a little bit different from the other angels. His ministry is not in the heavenly realm, but he leaves heaven and he comes down to the earth. Now, I should say that every once in a while, you might pick up some commentary or hear some sermon where this angel is identified as the Lord Jesus. It's certainly a minority view, but I alert you to it. But let me just say, this is not the Lord Jesus. He's not an angel. It is true in the Old Testament, the first half of your Bible, there were occasions when before Jesus took on our humanity, He would appear not as an angel of the Lord, but as the angel of the Lord. The very first time you see the angel of the Lord is in Genesis chapter 18. And Hagar, whom you will meet in heaven someday, she is a believer you will see of her conversion there in the book of Genesis. In fact, I think you will meet Ishmael in heaven. Some are confused and they think, well, God chose Isaac over Ishmael. He did in terms of the son of promise. But God didn't give Ishmael to Abraham so that he could spend an eternity in hell. And the man who's the father of the faithful shaped that man's life. And though he was somewhat of a donkey of a man, he nonetheless will be in the kingdom of God. But when his mother, Hagar, meets the angel of the Lord, she says, you are El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And so you will see him again. Uh, you can't finish Genesis. You come to the 18th chapter, and there the angel of the Lord comes with two normal angels. And again, on the 22nd chapter, the 31st chapter, and the 32nd chapter of Genesis. So the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is repeatedly called God. And so you'll read a verse, the angel of the Lord said, and then it will say, he, God, Yahweh said. And so the two persons are equated. This is what we call a Christophany. Now, I have a whole course on angelology if you want to study it. No one debates that the angel of the Lord is a special appearance of God. The question comes down, which member of the Godhead is he? And if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, you discover he is God the Son. There are theophanies where God, in a very unusual way, makes an appearance. This is what we call a Christophany. And after the incarnation, after Jesus comes to Bethlehem in a human body, while there are angels of the Lord or an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord never appeal, appears again. Now, the term angel, malach in Hebrew, angelos in Greek simply means a messenger. Most of the time, it's used of a literal real angel. Occasionally, it is used of a human. And so my friend Vitaly over here, who has his Russian Bible, he will discover, as in the Slavic languages, that the word angel, when it refers to a human, is the same word that's used when it refers to a literal angel, and you have to figure it out. And so John the Baptist is called an angel. 
John the Baptist's disciples are called angels. Why? Because they are messengers of God. Now, we've already seen as well that even the pastors, and some of the older translations says, say to the pastor of such and such church. But the pastor is an angel and that he is a messenger as we studied the seven churches. Now, although many well-meaning pastors, and again, it's a minority view, think that this angel is the Lord Jesus, they are actually contributing to the error of both Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. Now, you may not know it, but both Mormons and Jehovah's Witness are not Christians. They deny every essential orthodox doctrine of the Christian faith. And as your pastor, sometimes I have to name people because God calls me to shepherd you, to care you, care for you, and to warn you of the foxes who are after the sheep. I am to warn you of the wolves who want to destroy you. Mormons are not Christians. They deny the deity of Jesus. The virgin birth is defined in the Bible. The substitutionary atonement of Christ. On and on, every major doctrine of the Christian faith is denied by Mormonism. And so Mormons and Jehovah's Witness are properly deemed as cults. Not in the sense that, you know, they drink poison like a Jim Jones kind of group but they're cults theologically in that they veer from essential doctrines. They are not our brothers in Christ, though they think Jesus and Satan are brothers, that they were spirit brothers, angels. And they say that the first spirit child that God the Father had with one of his many wives was the Lord Jesus, and the second spirit child that he had was this one named Lucifer, later renamed Satan. Now, according to Mormon doctrine, those were the first spirit children. And of course, every cult wants to take their view and baptize it in a verse of Scripture. And so what verse do they use? Colossians 1.15. It says there that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so these cults use this verse to say that Jesus was the firstborn, that he was created, that he is not the creator. Now, it is true, I might refer to my firstborn as Jeremy because he was our firstborn child. But sometimes in Scripture, the term firstborn has nothing to do with the order of a child, but with the position or the status that someone is given. For instance, in Psalm 89, King David is referred to as the firstborn. Now, wait a minute. He's the eighth child of Jesse. He's the firstborn in that he is given a position of status. God chooses him to be the king. And of course, all you had to do was read the next verse of Colossians, and it's obvious that Jesus is not created. For it says, for by Christ all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. You know, when little children come into my office and I want to see if they understand the eternality of Christ, I will often ask them this question. I'll say, now, what time of year do we celebrate when Jesus leaves heaven and he comes to earth as a little baby? And over the years, I've heard all kinds of answers, Easter, Thanksgiving, Halloween. Uh, most of the kids get it, Christmas. And let me just say, I see a marked difference in those parents who take the time to have their children in a Sunday school class on Sunday morning and who bring them to Awana on Sunday night. 
If your children are not participating in that, you are really cutting them short. This is the Lord's day. So get up, get out of the bed, set the clothes out the night before, and bring them here. And bring them back on Sunday night. Awana runs from September through April. And if they are old enough to recite their name and give you their phone number, then they are old enough to be in the worship service as well. The Apostle Paul assumes that. Now, we live in a day where families are habitually segregated. And a lot of churches think they are doing you a favor and that they have a children's church, which in many mega churches go through the middle school years and in some all the way through the high school years. But families should worship together. And if they're old enough to recite their name, and so we ask you if they're five and above to bring them into the worship service. How do I know that's the biblical pattern? Because Paul clearly delineates that. Listen to his words to the church at Ephesus. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Where was that letter written? And the Lord's day in the worship service. Paul assumes that there will be children in the worship service, and so he directly addresses them. You say, my kids, they won't sit still for that long. Get the book. It's in every bathroom, men and women's alike. We get to go to big church. My wife and I wrote that. It will give you some very helpful hints. And you need to train them. And if you start that process when they're 12 or 13, you may have already lost them in the culture in that we live. And yes, that would mean if your child came to Sunday school and worship, then maybe you'd have to go to an adult Bible fellowship. And that would be a good thing. The church will dramatically change for you when you get in one of the small groups, which is a church in the church. Some come here and they say, oh, this is a big church. And the first service has three times as many people in it. They say, this is a big church. There's so many people. Look, if a church is healthy, it will grow. Healthy sheep will reproduce. And if it produces long enough, it can get large. But God gave us a pattern of a church within a church. And one way we accomplish that is through our adult Bible fellowships. But a lot of parents don't even have a plan in our day. They say, what do I teach my kids? Well, look, if you have them in Awana, they bring home the Awana book every week. And so if they're in the second grade, they learn, for instance, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And out in the margin, you're there to help them as a parent. What is a wage? What is a free gift? What's the implications? What's eternal life? And so more important than just memorizing 10 verses that you don't know, Learn one where they understand it and can embrace it. In both the Sunday school and Awana ministry will help the saved child to grow and the lost child to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then, of course, after I asked the kids about when we celebrate the incarnation, I had a eight-year-old in the office a few weeks ago, and I said, now you're eight years old. Where were you 10 years ago? He said, in my mother's stomach. I said, no, I don't think so. That would have been a long pregnancy. God bless that woman. Now, about 25% of the children will say, I was in heaven. I said, no, you weren't in heaven. I said, there was a time when you did not exist anywhere in this universe except in the God of, except in the mind of God Almighty who knows everything. He knew the day he was going to create you and weave you together in your mother's womb. 
But there was never, ever a time when Jesus did not exist. So I don't like to call, as many as you know, Christmas his birthday. I like to call it his earth day. You have a birthday and that your life started here on earth. The Lord Jesus, who has no beginning or end, leaves heaven and he comes to earth. Now, unfortunately, according to Mormon doctrine, when these kids say, oh, I think I was in heaven, where do they get that? Well, they either got it from an old Shirley Temple movie or they made it up, or maybe they studied Mormon doctrine. I don't know, but that's precisely what Mormon doctrine teaches. Listen to Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism. We are the first begotten as spirit babies in heaven, and then we are born naturally on the earth. Brigham Young, the second president of Mormonism, said this, in the spirit world, their spirits were first begotten and then brought forth. You can trace back your history to the father of our spirits in the eternal world. Orson Pratt, a member of the original Quorum of Twelve, if you know Mormonism, you know what that is. He said, before men and women are born on earth as babies, their spirits are adult size in heaven. When they are born, their spirits are compressed, which causes a loss of memory. So when children come to this earth, they think they are coming from heaven as a spirit child, and they come here to the earth. Look, that's not Bible doctrine. And so even to make this angel, Christ, is to contribute to error, because Jesus is not an angel. And even as the angel of the Lord, he is a totally different angel in a class all by himself, because he is called Jehovah Yahweh. Again, verse 1, I saw another strong angel come Coming down out of heaven. Now, do you remember the first strong angel we met in chapter 5? Remember? And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And so now John in this verse sees another strong angel. And like the previous strong angel, his name is not given, but he is described with the same strong voice. This angel, like the previous one, has a strong voice. By the way, there are just four named angels in the Bible, as this slide shows. Two that are holy, Michael and Gabriel. Two that are fallen. Lucifer was actually Satan before he fell. Some translations transliterate the word. Some interpret it as son of the morning. Lucifer, or in his fallen state, Satan. And of course, he has many titles. And then there's the angel that we studied in chapter 9, verse 11, Apollon in Hebrew and Abaddon in Greek. Now, angels come in different classes. We've already examined the cherubim and the seraphim. And all angels, holy and fallen, are organized and ranked. Uh, angels are more powerful, Second Peter 2.11 says, than humans. And so when you go to the garden tomb and you see the size of the stone that would have sat there in the front of Jesus' tomb, it would have been over 2,000 pounds, and yet a single angel moves it. They are more powerful, but they're not omnipotent. They're intelligent, but they're not omniscient. They are very fast, but they are not omnipresent. But occasionally, God describes an angel in a certain way. And here in the NAS, it says a strong angel. The ESV says, 
like the New King James, a mighty angel, or some translations, a powerful angel. We will see, by the way, another strong angel when we come to Revelation chapter 18. And that strong angel will take a mighty, mighty millstone and cast it to the earth. Again, I saw another strong angel. Now, sometimes the Greek New Testament can be helpful, and this is certainly one of those places. As you know, in English, there's one word for another. There are two words for another in Greek. There's the word alos, that means another of the same kind. And then there's the Greek word heteros, which means another of a different kind. That word heteros comes right into English, and so we have words like heterosexual or heterodoxy, one word relating to different sexes, or heterodoxy is someone who teaches a different doctrine, something that is less than orthodox. Jesus uses the word alos when he describes the Holy Spirit. Remember, I will ask the Father, and he will send you Alos, an alos, another helper, just like myself. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. He's not a fleecy cloud. He's not a bird. He's not a force. Don't ever call him it. He is as much God as the Father, equal with the Son and equal with the Father. Now, linguistically, he says, I will send an alos, another strong angel. No one debates that the angel, only one mentioned up till this time in chapter 5, is a real, literal angel. And so when he says another strong angel, he's talking about another created being that God made as an angel. So this is the second time this word strong to associate the great power and authority and might he has is associated with one of God's angels. Look at again, verse 1. I saw another angel, another strong angel coming down out of heaven. Notice, clothed with a cloud and the rainbow was upon his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, the reason I think some are quick to get on the bandwagon and think this strong angel is the Lord Jesus is because the description of Jesus and revelation of his face and his feet uh, are in some ways similar. But understand, Christ, again, is never designated as an angel. Hold your finger here, and if you're in the Revelation, scan back a little bit to the right, and you will come to the book of Hebrews. If you're new to the Bible, just go back a little bit, excuse me, to the left, <laughs> and, and you'll come to where you can't go unless you want to go into the maps. Uh, you, you'll come to the book of Hebrews, and then, and then find Hebrews chapter 1, and put your marker in there, because we'll come back to the book of Hebrews after we look at this passage. This, by the way, is a great passage of Scripture. I've had Mormons and Jehovah's Witness before at my door, and I've brought them to Hebrews chapter 1, and they get all confused. You see, while the Jehovah's Witness have a translation of the Bible that was written by a group of men, none of whom knew the original languages, and they purposely erred in their translation of a number of verses... They messed up on Hebrews 1 and that they kept it just the way God originally had it. And of course, Jesus is distinguished from angels in this passage. Look at Hebrews 1 verse 3. And he, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels 
and he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now remember, the writer of the Hebrews is paralleling the old covenant with the new covenant. And there were some Jewish Christians who went back to old covenant worship in order to escape persecution. And all the way through the book, he shows the superiority of the new covenant. And he reminds them the old covenant was mediated through angels. But the new covenant, the new deal, the new testament, the new promise is mediated through God the Son, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? He's never said that to an angel. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all of the angels of God worship him. Look, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only. To worship anyone other than God is absolute blasphemy and idolatry. And yet the Father invites the angels. Look, men are never to worship angels, but the angels are to worship the Son. And he again brings the firstborn into the world and says, let all the angels of God worship him. Verse 7, and of the angels, he said, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. Notice, he calls him God. There's this dialogue in the Trinity. Your throne. O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. So do not ever think that Jesus is an angel. That may be good Mormonism, but it is not biblical theology. Furthermore, John will show us again his distinctions as we walk through. Look at verse 1 again of Revelation 10. Hold your finger in Hebrews. Don't lose it. We're coming back to it. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Now, just because he's coming down out of heaven with a cloud doesn't mean that this is Jesus. Now, it is true. In Daniel 7, verse 14, God the Son is seen returning from heaven on a cloud. In fact, Jesus quotes that verse when he speaks of his second coming there on the Mount of Olives. Let me read it to you, Matthew 24, 30. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power in great glory. Jesus taught that when he descends to earth, in Zechariah, the 14th chapter, says his feet will be planted on the Mount of Olives, the very mountain that he ascended from. Jesus is literally coming to rule and reign upon the earth, that he will come with clouds in great glory. So here's an angel coming to the earth on clouds. Why do we know this cannot be Jesus? Because Jesus underscores in the three places the Olivet Discourse is given that when he comes back on the clouds, that will be the next time, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. So don't think for one millisecond that this could be Jesus. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and notice in the rainbow was upon his head. So he comes, he's clothed with a cloud. And by the way, nine times in the New Testament, 
clouds are associated with judgment. And yes, this angel has a rainbow upon his head, and uh, he's shining like the sun, and his feet appear, notice, as pillars of fire. But again, this doesn't mean he's God the sun. The word rainbow is the word iris in Greek. Uh, it's used outside of the Bible to describe brilliant colors like the brilliant colors in f- first century Koinoit Greek of a, of a peacock with all of its feathers. It's used to describe the colored portion of the center of your eye, and so it comes directly into uh, English. So it's used to describe brilliant colors, and very often rainbows are associated with mercy. So we're seeing this angel coming from a throne that has a rainbow around it, and he comes in essence in uniform. He has a rainbow around his head. You know, and I think among other things, God is underscoring, this is not like the angels we studied in the previous chapter. This is a holy angel of God, and he comes with God's uniform on. And in Scripture, rainbows are often associated also with God's mercy. Most of you at least know of the rainbow in Noah's day, an expression of the mercy of God. And this section of Scripture is going to begin to unfold for us the mercy of God that is going to happen during this time as His wrath falls on the earth. God's heart is not to destroy man. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. His heart is to save people. And so next time we will come to the two witnesses whom God is going to use to preach the gospel, why that men might find Christ. Yes, he has a face like the sun, just like Jesus does in Revelation 1.16. In uh, Revelation 18.1, you see again the same picture, but so don't angels. They are bright. They come in brilliant appearance. Remember the angels at the resurrection tomb where they shone with this great brightness? And this angel has feet like pillars of fire. Now, Jesus' eyes are described that way, but not his feet. His feet are described in the first chapter, like in Daniel, as bronze. Now, there are similarities, let me just say, in the Gospels and the book of Hebrews that we were just in, in the sense that Christ has angels under his authority. And if for no other reason but to show that this angel is different from the other angels we just studied in chapter 9, God is underscoring his description. Now, by now, if you've been with us in our study, we've seen the function of angels doing many things. They're involved in serving. They're involved in worshiping. They're involved in watching. They're involved in announcing. They're involved in delivering judgments. And they are involved in pronouncing doom. In fact, one angel, when we come later to the Revelation, he will take Satan and literally cast him in the abyss where he is locked up for a thousand years. And as you read of the angels in the Revelation, it becomes apparent. Remember, we're reading the future. This has not happened yet. This is not history. This is future. None of these things have happened yet. And as you read through the Revelation, it becomes apparent that these angels are anticipating this day when God's holiness is vindicated, when his righteous judgment comes upon the earth. And so here's this good, holy, strong, mighty angel, verse 2. And he had in his hand a little book. Uh, It's the word for scroll. It's not the word for book like we have a book today. Codexes comes a few centuries later where they're bound like the book that you have in your hand. This is a scroll. And so some of your translations say a little scroll. We talked about the seven-sealed scroll or the seven-sealed book. 
So he has a little book which was open, and he placed, notice, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, this is a unusual word. It appears only once in all the Bible, and it's used to describe a very little, small book. Now, this is not the scroll that we studied in chapter 5. This is a little book. Now, we're going to see here that he will place his right foot on the sea and his left hand on the land. And we're going to see as we study this passage in what follows, beginning in the 11th chapter, that he is given the authority, the written authority, to pronounce Christ's right to take dominion over the world, which will be formally announced in chapter 11 and verse 15. Now, we've already studied back in the sixth chapter when Jesus begins to break open the seals that a seven-sealed scroll in the first century, and really in Jewish people's minds today as you speak with the Orthodox, is descriptive of a title deed. And Jesus, of course, is given the title deed from the right hand of the Father. Remember, John was in heaven. He is weeping. Who is worthy? to take the title deed. And the Father hands it to God the Son. And of course, that title deed represents Christ's right to reclaim what Adam lost. God originally intended for man to have dominion over the planet. But of course, Satan came along and he tempted that first couple and they lost that opportunity. They lost the farm, so to speak. Now, occasionally someone will call me in the Bible line. They'll say, well, Pastor Carl, didn't God know this would happen? Yes, if God didn't know that, God wouldn't be God. God knows everything. Well, couldn't have God just made it so that Adam wouldn't sin, that he would just obey God and we wouldn't be in this mess today? Sure, God could have done that, but then man would not be a free moral agent. Some of you have taken the course in the Institute on Anthropology, and one of the assignments is to write a paper on the, what it means to be made in the image of God. And there's about seven things that are underscored in Scripture, and one of those seven is that man is created with a free will. Suppose you had a child that was somewhat rebellious. And suppose somehow you could uh, hypnotize that child where your child says, I love you, Father, I will obey you. That's not what you'd want, is it? No, of course not. See, God created you that you might know him, that you might have fellowship with him. And so God gave man the choice to choose good or evil. And when Satan tempted the couple and they chose evil, Adam lost dominion. He became the God of this world. He's called the prince of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And so when in the temptation recorded in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, Satan asked Jesus in exchange to worship him, he would give him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't say they're not yours to give. They were his to give because Adam lost those. And as we'll see, there's moving towards a person and an event when Satan will take full dominion through his antichrist. But Christ redeemed the creation and man. If you were with us several years ago in our study of the book of Romans, we saw in Romans 8, like in Genesis, not only did Adam fall, but all of the creation fell. And so Paul personifies the creation is mourning and groaning, looking for its redemption, just as we mourn and groan and we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, and give me that new resurrection.
resurrection body and complete my salvation. So here's this little book and this strong angel opens it up because it's given to show that Jesus has authority to take the earth. Jesus made it possible when he died on that cross to not only take people back, but to take the earth and really, as we'll see, all the universe. Notice, he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, 71% of the planet, I'm told, is water. I, I, I didn't calculate that myself, but I've looked it up on a number of occasions. 71% of the planet is water, all right? So there's a lot of water. So he's got one foot in the sand and one foot in the water. What is he doing? He's claiming every drop of water and every grain of sand. He's claiming the earth for the Lord Jesus. And we see this picture in a number of places in the Word of God. Most of us know with Joshua, God said to Joshua, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I will give it to you just as I spoke to Moses. And so Israel's only duty was to claim the land for the Lord. But in this case, this strong angel claims not just a piece of property, but the land and the sea. Again, remember what we read in Psalm 8. It says, you made him, speaking of man, speaking of Adam, you made him to rule over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. Again, Adam sinned, we in and with Adam, and so we lost our kingdom and our crown. Now, do you still have your finger in Hebrews? All right, go to Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. Hebrews chapter 2, because I want you to see that the same psalm is quoted in Hebrews 2, and then he is going to apply the truth to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, he's speaking of the superiority of this new covenant, this new deal over the old. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. 2 in verse 6, where he is quoting Psalm 8. But one has testified somewhere saying, now wait a minute, does the writer of the Hebrews have a memory lapse? Oh, somewhere, can't remember where. No, not at all. This man obviously knows his scripture. He perfectly quotes the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible. He's not forgotten anything at all. This is just a, a writing style to drive home a point. You come into my office and you say, you're down in the dumps. You say, I just don't feel like God loves me. And I say, isn't it testified somewhere that God so loved you, the world, that he gave his son? That's what the writer is here. That's the force of the statement. He's, again, proving the superiority of the new covenant over the old. And so to establish his argument, he wants to first establish the original destiny that was revealed by God. Stay with me. Verse 6, what is man? That you remember him. Or the son of man, that you are concerned about him. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now do we not yet see all things subjected to him? All you have to do is look around, and it's obvious that man is not exercising dominion over the creation. Every time I go fishing, I'm reminded of this. I try to outsmart the fish and try to get them to jump on my hook, but they don't ever listen to me. I have to go to one of those stock ponds if I'm going to catch anything. In fact, not only the fish, but the birds and the animals. We used to have a dog named Jenny. 
And that dog, Jenny, never, ever, ever seemingly listened to me. Uh, just a few Wednesday nights ago, I was mentioning the two madmen of Gadara and how Christ cast 2,000 plus demons into the pigs. And of course, you teach that passage sometimes and people get all bent up like, why did Jesus destroy 2,000 good hogs? You know, that's a lot of bacon or whatever. And, and, uh, but someone came up and said, Pastor Carla, is it possible for an animal to be demon-possessed? I said, yeah, I had a dog once named Jenny. She was demon-possessed, and uh, thank God she went home to be with the Lord. <laughs> I wonder if there's gas chambers in heaven. I'm not sure, but I shouldn't say that. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. Again, when Adam sinned, He immediately lost his kingdom and his crown. And because we fell with Adam, the earth is not subject to man and even the ground. We now work through the sweat of our brow, through the thistles and thorns. And every time we see these extremes in the weather, it's all a reminder that the creation has fallen. Now look at the first half of verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We do see him, and so now the writer takes the principle and he applies it not to Adam, but to the Lord Jesus to give us the answer to our dilemma. Jesus became a man. Why? That he might suffer and die. That he might recapture the dominion that was lost. We just read in Psalm 8. You have put all things under his feet. This was God's original intention. All sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the pass of the sea. When Jesus was on this earth, He exercised dominion over the creation. In Mark's account, when He describes the 40 days in which He was tempted in the wilderness, He was there with wild beasts. But not a one harmed Him. On His triumphal entry... We are told that he came on a colt that had never been ridden before there on Palm Sunday. You try to get on a colt that had never been ridden before, and you see just what happens. Jesus exercised dominion over the fish. He commanded them into the nets. And on one occasion, he said, Peter, throw your hook in the water. And the very first fish that he'd already commanded to swallow a fish that you will land on your hook, you can go pay your tax in mine. And he exercises dominion over the birds of the sky. My son Jordan years years ago were in the Ukraine, and we stayed in one particular house, and about five feet outside the window was this rooster. And I want to tell you that rooster started around 3.30, 4 a.m., and it seemed like he never quit. Now, I suppose I could have taken a shotgun and killed him, but listen, Jesus had dominion even over the birds. He knew the precise time that rooster would crow in order to send Peter a signal. But we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Jesus who created the angels for a short period of time as he took on our humanity was made lower than the angels. He took on a restriction that angels don't have. Angels can't die. But when Jesus took on our humanity and he carried himself there to Golgotha and gave his life in our place, he shed his blood. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. Verse 9, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, he did it that he might redeem the world. Now, John assumes you have that theology. 
Now, if you lived 50, 75 years ago when people didn't watch TV and spend their whole lives on Facebook, they might have had it, but not in our days. So that's why I took the time to give us that theology. Look now at verse 2. And he had, Revelation 10, 2, and he had in his hand a little book which was open, and he placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, in Bible times, when a conqueror overthrew a nation, if he was claiming a piece of property on the shoreline, he would do this exactly, and he would hold up his right hand, and he would claim it in the honor of his conquering that place. Christopher Columbus did that when he planted the flag of Spain on that island, and even the Americans did it when we put our flag there on the moon. This method has been used for time and eternity, it seems, to claim something. But here's this strong angel who claims the whole universe in essence for Jesus. Remember in Colossians 1, I read it to you earlier, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, you may own a nice piece of property somewhere, a piece of land, but and you may own it outright. You've got the title deed. But before you own that land, someone else owned the land. And before they owned it, someone else owned it. And God says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. And I'm here to tell you that Jesus is coming back and he's going to claim it all once again. And so according to verse 3, notice this angel cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. So this angel with a loud voice, a phone megale. We reverse the words and we get our word megaphone. With a loud megaphone voice, like the roar of a lion. I was a boy and I was in a zoo one time and all of a sudden that lion in the cage roared and I about jumped five feet. My dad laughed. I could still picture it in my mind. There is a roar and ominous noise that a lion makes. And so here is this strong angel with identifying with, of course, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is not only the sacrificial lamb, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And of course, uh, he roars like a lion, not something that's incommunicable, but something that is very clear, as we'll see in a moment. And though Satan has temporarily taken control, the announcement is Jesus is coming to take it back. And so when we come to the next chapter, we'll say the kingdom of this world has become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And so we're told as this angel cries out with this loud lion's voice, notice the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now step back. Let's not get lost in the forest. Let's keep the big picture. Here's this mighty, strong angel who descends from heaven in a cloud. He places one foot on the earth and one foot on the sea, and he shouts something so loudly that it reverberates like a lion's roar followed by seven peals of thunder. Now, eight times in the book of Revelation, thunder is associated with the voice of God's judgment. In many other times in Scripture, it's used to describe God. For instance, in Psalm 18, King David said, "...the Lord has thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice." 
In Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. In Job, the 37th chapter, God thunders with His voice wondrously, doing great things which we cannot comprehend. In the 40th chapter of Job, can you thunder with a voice like His? And so here in this verse, we see the number seven, which we've already studied is a number of completion. And so the seven peals of thunder would imply that the full and complete revelation and all the details with those judgment is about ready to occur. Now, please understand, this is not just some loud sounding boom like before a thunderstorm at your home. This thunder says something. It communicates. He hears it, and he wants to write it down. Remember, on three occasions, God the Father spoke in Scripture. Do you remember? In terms of in the New Covenant time of Jesus' life on the earth, he spoke at his baptism. He spoke at his transfiguration. And the third time, if you remember, he spoke just as he entered there into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And of course, when he did that at his triumphal entry, the Bible says the crowd who stood by heard it, and some said to one another, "He has it has thundered, while others said, an angel has spoken to Jesus. But John understood this thunderous voice as the voice of God. Notice verse 4. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken... I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Now follow this. John says, I was about to write down what I heard in the thunder, but God says, keep it sealed up. In other words, don't write it down. John, don't reveal to anyone what you have just heard. Do you know how much ink has been spilt as to what this thunder means and what was said. There are whole internet websites by some real wacko quackos who say that God told them what was in the seven thunders. Cults love to bring in extra revelation and manipulate the Word of God. Now, we're told at the end of the book that God is very clear that He's given us everything we need to know, and He hasn't held anything back in Revelation 22.10. And He said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And yet, with this particular message given in the seven thunders, He's not permitted to write down what He specifically hears. Now, the truth is, I don't know what He said, and you don't know And no cult or any other group or pastor or preacher or evangelist knows either. The only one who knows is God Almighty and at least the Apostle John. Now, all Scripture is profitable. Every word. And so why did God allow us to read this morning about seven peals of thunder that represented some revelation of God, and then He doesn't tell us what it is? To me, this is one of the clearest passages of something you will often hear me say, that while the Word of God doesn't tell us everything that we need to know, it tells us what we need to know. It's not exhaustive, but it is certainly sufficient for everything that we need. Is that not what Moses said? The sacred things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe the words of the law. 
Even John wrote in his gospel. And there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. In other words, we only have a fraction of what Jesus did and said while he was here upon the earth. Some of us would like to have some additional details. What was he like when he was eight years old? What did he do when he was 15? God doesn't tell us. Now, there are books, even extra books, pseudepigraphal books. There's one book that talks about Jesus as a little boy. He has 12 clay pigeons and does a miracle on them, and they turn into live pigeons and all this nonsense. But here's the thing, is that while God's Word is not an exhaustive record, it is a sufficient record, and that is something that we need to know. Certainly, I'd love to read another Sermon on the Mount, but God gave us only one. There are some things that we don't need to know. And Christians are always trying to go to some new seminar and read some new book, and nothing wrong with those things as long as they get you into what we do know the Word of God. Now, that's the angel's appearance. You say, this is going to be a long sermon. I'm actually almost done. Secondly, there's the angel's announcement, the angel's announcement. I suppose if God told us everything we needed to know, our spiritual circuits would just burn out. Look at verse 5. Then the angel, whom I saw standing in the sea and on the land, lifted up his right hand in heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and earth and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, and that, that there will be delay no longer. Now, the announcement is pretty amazing, not just because of what the angel proclaims, but how he does it. Like a person in a court of law, and I'm told this is where it originates in America. A lot of the things we do originate from the Bible, and so you go into a court of law, one hand in the Bible, right hand in the air, and you make a commitment to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, clearly, this strong angel cannot be the Lord Jesus because in the way in which he takes this oath. Certainly, there are times in Scripture where God swears by himself, right? There are three different occasions in the Scripture because God can't swear by anyone higher than himself. He swears by himself to underscore the absolute certainty that what he's telling you he is going to do. But here, this strong angel does not swear by himself. He swears by him, God, and that was Jesus, because we just read it from Colossians, who created heaven and the earth. Very important. And since God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, then God's judgment upon it is absolutely just. Look, if God did not create the heaven and the earth, as the evolutionists would have you to believe, then he would need permission to judge the heaven and the earth. But as the creator, he is able to do exactly what he is going to do. And so the angel says, there will be delay no longer. Now, unfortunately, though it was understood in the 17th century, it's not understood in our day. The old King James, unlike the new King James that follows the NAS here, says there will be time no longer. So some people think there's no time in heaven. We talked about that back in the eighth chapter. Even in one of our hymns, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. No, there's time in heaven. We've already seen the tribulation saints saying, how long, O Lord? We see time designations, 42 months, three and a half years. We saw 30 minutes of silence in heaven. We saw the day, the month, and the year that God designated for something to happen. But what he is speaking here is of delay. There will be delay no longer. 
What God said through his prophets, it's called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, a day that has never been fulfilled, though the amillennialist writes it off, spiritualizes it, makes all of Revelation history with the exception of the 19th chapter. Listen, this is going to happen. Look at verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants the prophet. A mystery, of course. We've studied it. It's a sacred secret. It's a secret that God reveals to his people. You know, think about the awful thing we've witnessed this week. It just was heartbreaking, wasn't it? It is heartbreaking. I just feel so bad for those families as we see this shooter coming to this school once again. And of course, people ask, me all the time. What in the world is are we coming to? I mean, what is happening? I'll tell you what we're coming to. We're coming to Jesus. He's coming back. He's going to fix it all, my friend. We are seeing a nation and a world that is stiff-arming God Almighty. We said we don't want God, and we have to figure out all these things now of what we're going to do. And I thank God for our police and even our FBI. They're human too. But listen, we need the Lord God as our protector. As a nation, if we say no to God, our whole freedom as Americans is built on a Judeo-Christian ethic. And if that ethic is gone, if it dissolves, then you have to remove freedom. We saw it at 9-11. We can't greet our loved ones anymore at the gate, can we? Freedoms are being evaporated. Why? Because our morality is dissipating as a society. This kid isn't mentally ill. He's evil. It's not a sickness. It's a sin. It's not a weakness. It's a wickedness. And he may even be demon-possessed, for all I know. He has some of the characteristics. It's an awful thing. The wrath of God is filled up. It's finished. And we're going to see it begin to spill. That brings us finally to the apostles' application. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and the land. John now gets his order. You know the voice. We've studied it already. It's Christ in heaven. And he's told specifically, so I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. God is giving him an object lesson. Truth understood and digested can cause at times bitter tears and at other times it can be sweet to your mouth. And by the way, this concept was not totally strange for a Jew in the first century because when a little boy and girl learned the alphabet, they would literally make those Hebrew letters out of flour and sugar. And once they mastered the letter, they would be able to eat it. And so he's giving a, a picture here where he takes this little book and he literally eats it. And it's a bittersweet kind of thing because the word of God can be both. Look at verse 10. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth, it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter 
Here John displays a physical reaction to what a believer can know spiritually. On the one hand, it's sweet. There is an anticipation that God is in control, that God is in charge, that all of the rebellion of this world is going to be fixed. But there's also a bitterness to it and the trumpet and the bold judgments that are going to come. It made John nauseated. And they, the voice from heaven and the angel on earth, they said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. In light of what John has just been told, he's going to prophesy again of the seventh trumpet that contains seven bowls, and we're going to read about it. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me suggest three applications. Number one, ask yourself, are you satisfied with what God has revealed or are you looking somewhere else? Again, Christianity today is always looking for some new book, going to some new seminar, listening to some new message, some new conference, nothing wrong with those things. If they plunge you into the Word of God, But unfortunately, we live in a day where the modern church does not believe in the adequacy of the Scripture. So a pastor will not stand up here and preach for an hour. He will entertain and they will have skits and all kinds of nonsense. Why? Because they do not believe the Scriptures are adequate to change lives. Listen, the Word of God is sufficient. God gave us everything we need to know. He hasn't shown us everything, but everything that we need to know, He has given us. Secondly, ask yourself, are you internalizing God's Word? Are you internalizing His Word? See, the direction the angel gave John the Apostle was to eat it. What is he underscoring? That you are to take the Word of God, and in Paul's words, you are to let it dwell richly in your inner man. The Word of God is compared to food, bread, milk, honey, meat. We see Ezekiel and Jeremiah the prophets literally eating the Word. And God is underscoring once again in Scripture that it's not enough for you to hear it and read it. He wants you to digest it, to take it into your inner person. And in some occasions it will be sweet, And on other occasions, it will be bitter. Finally, are you willing to deliver the truth you have received? The average Christian in America no longer shares his faith. I mean, that's just the truth. The average born-again believer no longer takes people through the plan of salvation. And we wonder why America is going to pot. Why don't they? Because they're lukewarm. They're entertained by all of the things around them. Look, when you're in love with someone, you talk about that. I had an engaged couple in my office and they couldn't help but talk about each other. Why? Because they're in love with each other. When you're in love with Jesus, you'll talk about Him even if people don't like you because you love Him and you want to obey Him. Now, the truth here of verse 11 was that it was not enough for, for, for John to internalize the truth. He needed then to deliver it, to write about it, to preach it. And we're going to see that beginning in our next session together. Look, it doesn't do you much good if you know that the wrath of God is real, but you never ever warn anyone 
about the wrath that is coming from heaven. God wants you to assimilate God's Word, but He wants you to disseminate it as well. And if you share the love of God without the wrath of God, or if you share the wrath of God without the love of God, then you have been out of balance. This, the truth of Scripture is both sweet and bitter. You can't just talk about God's love and not His wrath. You can't just talk about God's wrath and not His love. If you take one truth and you emphasize it to the exclusion of another truth, then you've made that one truth an untruth. No, we are to preach the whole counsel of Scripture. We are to disseminate the bitter parts and the sweet parts. Otherwise, we have loveless truth or truthless love. Now, our Holy Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. You gave us this portion of Scripture, as difficult as it is. It is here for edification to change us, to make us more like Your Son. I pray, Father, for this brand new fresh week that's in front of us, that we would be sensitive to the people that we will meet, some of whom are on a course for an eternity without You. Give us open doors of opportunity. We know we cannot speak to everyone but I'm sure there's someone we can share with. Our Father, give us that opportunity. Help us to give the whole counsel of Scripture that our sin is offensive to You, that it warrants wrath. But in Your love, in our place on a cross, You took that wrath for us. Help someone today who has never received Jesus as Savior and Lord to cry out to Him. Thank You that Christ Jesus receives sinful men. Thank You that whoever will call on His name will be saved. Help someone today, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us who know You to put our heads in this book to assimilate it so that we might disseminate it. And we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.